How are you doing? <laughs> trying to be low key, man. You know, just trying to be chill. Why? Because we're interviewing the same guest that we interviewed. Yeah, no, because maybe we have more stuff I'm, and I'm more excited. Surprises. Yeah, surprises. Yeah, we have more surprises. Yeah. I'm just trying to be chill. So, what's up, Dave? What do you got? Some paleo news? Well, yeah, you know, when I drive home after I go to the cinema every Sunday night, and you I do. drive home around ten o'clock at night. Yeah, every Sunday. The uh, I support Hollywood. I, I didn't know that. I was driving home last night, and there was this fantastic radio program on the Amazon and how the Amazon is roughly 10 million years old as a rainforest. Mm. And so I wanted to know more about that. So I'm going to ask you, is that what you understand it to be, 5 to 10 million years old as a rainforest? unbroken well uh, this is in the in i don't time. know department but uh i know okay. one of the most fantastic things about the amazon is it used to flow the other way yeah it used, it to, used flow. to flow up well it used to flow into the pacific what to the pacific side Did it? yeah yes ray is right recent geologic studies suggest that for millions of years the amazon river used to flow in the opposite direction from east to west Eventually, the Andes Mountains formed, blocking its flow to the Pacific Ocean and causing it to switch directions to its current mouth in the Atlantic. Mountain ranges change weather patterns altogether, but I know yeah. Yeah. that there are many of the fish in the Amazonian basin that uh, date back to the Mesozoic, man. So uh, Every freshwater fish has kind of a saltwater equivalent. Yeah. Because there's, you know, there's there's freshwater dolphins and saltwater dolphins. And, you know, there are dolphins in there. There and are catfish and everything. You know, there's stingrays in that river, way up the river, right. that are in freshwater. And there are no other stingrays yeah. on the planet, you know, in freshwater. Let's find a paleontologist Dude, that does the Amazon. I've got the guy. Uh, it's a catfish guy. Okay. John Lundberg, okay, uh, catfish uh, guru of all time, and of deep time. Well, I want to know. He's a deep time. I want to know. There were giant catfish. He's the guy who named Mega Piranha. And, uh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Man. Let's do it. Let's do all it. Right, we'll get him okay, on the show. But today, <laughs> today is an amazing uh, redo. We are talking to Robert De Palma. We talked to him a little while back, and I'm so excited that we're going to talk to him again. He's got some more stuff yeah. to say. Yeah, so let's hit him up. Hit him up. Call him up. Hey, Dave, we're back with Robert De Palma, paleontologist and faculty member at the Geosciences Department at Florida Atlantic University and a doctoral student at the University of Manchester in the UK. A decade ago, Robert discovered and worked on the world-famous Tana site in North Dakota. He's back with us to talk some more. Yeah. Some more surprises, Robert? There's always surprises when you're interested in fieldwork. So every single time you go out there, you always get something you're not expecting. That's the cool part about it. Well, no, you know what? Let's just uh, recap recap what the Tannis site is just in, a, in, a, in one little paragraph. And then uh, let's hear. Let's hear the surprises. Tannis is a site that essentially got a front row seat to one of the coolest and, and most catastrophic events of the Mesozoic because uh, the, the site actually preserves uh, a, a maximum of a two-hour time span snapshot right after the asteroid hit wow. the Yucatan Peninsula at the end of the Cretaceous. So basically, you've got that time frame that's frozen in the geologic record, and you're able to get information 
moment-by-moment record of what happened right after the impact hit. So this is like a period of time that we all want to hear about. This is a period of time that everyone that's loved dinosaurs from the time they were a child has always thought about, well, what was it like when the asteroid hit? We know that that, you know, basically scrubbed all of our best friends off the other surface. What exactly happened? How did it go down? And now we can kind of get a little more. Why is it so precise? So explain it's it's the actual ejecta and spherules that rain down in certain layers at certain different time periods. That's why it's precise, correct? Well, yeah, when we talk about geology, when, when you talk about a snapshot in geology, you want sort of like a perfect storm scenario uh, to occur. So you want to have lots of sediment get deposited in a very, very short time span. And essentially what that does is when you have just tons and tons of sediment drop out uh, over a very short time period, what you've got is the geologic equivalent of high-speed film. So instead of looking at what you might think of as like a slideshow or looking at a picture album uh, with a lot of time between pictures, uh, which is what we normally have in the geologic record, what we've got is akin to watching almost a video of what happened at that time. You're actually looking at what happened kind of at more of a personal level uh, to some of these creatures in the, in the first uh, moments to hours after impact. Well, you said actually, when, so we started talking here, it was like a two hour period. Walk us through that two hours. What do you see in the rock record and how, how do you come up with two hours? So the cool thing about uh, this sort of work is that you have physics involved. And in this case, you've got ballistic trajectories of the particles that come out of the crater. And I owe all of this to the group effort of the amazing research team that's been involved. This is not a one-man band. Essentially, this project has brought together some of the top minds in uh, in KPG Boundary Research that started all of this back in the 80s. Walter Alvarez and Florentine Morass and Jan Smith and all these guys who have started back in the 80s mm-hmm. that's how the whole impact uh, you know situation was resolved in the geologic record they they figured it out and now we're kind of reassembling the group with some new people as well and figuring out these other details so walter alvarez himself worked on the ballistic trajectories of these ejected particles that came out of the crater and essentially the way this shakes out is if you've got a particle, a little sphere of what was then molten glass that is shot out of the crater, that is going to come down at some point on Earth uh, a given amount of time after. And if you look at the diameter of the spherules that are accumulating there at the Tannis site, and these are accumulating as what we call primary depositions. So they're actually being locked in the sediment column as the sediment is depositing. So it's kind of like a real-time thing you're seeing. You get the sizes of these, and you can work that backwards in the equations. Walter did this to find out how long in the past they had originated from the crater. And in this case, you can say, okay, we've got a spheral of maybe two millimeters diameter, and you can work that back and say, oh, it was, this was X minutes after impact. And in I see. The, okay. the case of the site, we're looking at maybe the first, you know, 15 to 20 minutes to maybe hour and a half max after impact. That's the time slice we're looking at. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. So it blows up down off the coast of Mexico. These rocks go up into outer space or almost into outer space. They start raining down. Do the little rocks and molten glass come first and then the bigger ones? Or I mean, that is that the calculating that you're doing, the weight of the rock and... 
angle of Basically, these little glassy spherules, they started out as essentially part of the target rock and a little bit of contamination from the vaporized asteroid itself. They went out of the atmosphere, they went out into space, and they came back down on these arc-like trajectories. It's like if you Mm. shoot a bullet into space, they come back down. As they're coming down through the atmosphere, they're, they're experiencing drag due to the atmospheric friction. So these things are getting incandescent, and they're glowing as they're coming through the, uh, the atmosphere, kind of like tracer rounds out of, a, out of a gun, and they're pummeling the atmosphere. Are they glowing because they're ent- re-entering the atmosphere, or are they glowing because they're already hot from the object hitting the Earth? Most likely, that's from re-entry. So most likely, all of this drag is coming about because they're re-entering the atmosphere at these high velocities, and these incandescent spherules are all heating up the atmosphere. So you get this heat pulse right after impact. So when these things are hitting the ground, combined with the fact that you've got the heat pulse from the atmosphere, that caused all sorts of wildfires to occur. But uh, basically what happened is you have these larger ejectospherules that will come out first. So those things would have started hitting the ground, uh, if I remember correctly, 14 to 18 minutes after impact uh, is when you first see them, maybe a little bit earlier. But right around that window is when they start hitting North Dakota. Yeah, but how big are those? Are you talking five mil spherules or or, average, average size? Yeah, no, average size is about the size of a, a small BB. You know, you're looking at uh, oh. a two and a half millimeters uh, is your, your average large size. There were no chunks? Everything was pulverized? Uh, yeah, you're not going to see large chunks that far from the crater. If you go to areas oh. that are uh, much, much closer to the crater, you've got what's called the ejecta blanket, and that's stuff that never necessarily ended up airborne completely. You've got essentially this this molten... A blanket of awfulness that spreads outward from the crater, which has giant pieces of partially melted rock. You've got house sizes blocks of partially melted rock that are mixed up with this uh, molten ejected blanket that, that covered everything near the crater. Wow. But stuff that went airborne is coming down in these little tiny fragments, starting off at Tanis, which is basically 3,000 kilometers from the crater. You got pieces that are, you know, maybe two and a half millimeters in diameter. And then as time goes on, you get the smaller and smaller pieces showing up. Oh, so the bigger pieces okay. show up first. And it's a, what you ah. call a graded deposit. So you get the big ones first and then tiny ones. And when you get to the very, very top of the deposit, so all these things are, are falling out of the sky as your sediment is, is filling up in the site. And you get to the top of the column, and once the surges had receded, these massive water surges that deposited this, uh, the tennis deposit, uh, on top of that, you get the dust-sized debris that is what we call the KPG boundary elsewhere. You've got a lot of the iridium in there. You've got all your clay-sized particles. And at the base of that, you've got your what you call microcrystites, these little 50-micron diameter fragments that condensed from the vapor plume. And they're so tiny, they could fit inside of a human hair. Wow. 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 So these tiny little BBs of fire, BBs of fire raining down from, they've gone up in outer space, they're raining down. What does that look like? Is it just a, like a hailstorm of fire and then it Aftermath sets fire? Firework? <laughs> but it just sets fires everywhere. What happens to the planet then, Robert? What's, what does it look like in North Dakota and elsewhere? BB's on fire. Man, that sounds like a rock band or something. <laughs> um, so basically, when these things, well, when, when the impact occurred, you had probably one of the most massive explosions that anything in the area had ever seen because you've got a 10-kilometer-wide bolide that's going to hit the Earth uh, 
you know, that's going to cause earthquakes that are probably uh, magnitude uh, 11, if not greater, which has been proposed by some research. Uh, so first, you've got this tremendous explosion that extends beyond the atmosphere. So you wouldn't see the mushroom clouds like they show in some of the reconstructions. The atmosphere would have played very little role in the ejection of uh, this debris. It, the, the vapor plume would have shot right out of the atmosphere with, with uh, little trouble. Now, all these little beads of still molten glass would have uh, then solidified as they went out into space. They would have come back down, and when they entered the atmosphere, they would have turned into essentially a rain of glowing beads. So you would have had almost like a monsoon rainstorm composed of these little glass beads all over the place. So that and thick, they would have been hitting the ground all over the U.S. So that thick, you mean like if you held your hand out, your hand would be covered, or are they more sparse? If you had to experience this event firsthand, you would have been literally pelted from head to toe with these things. They were right. very, very numerous. Uh, so your hand would have filled up very quickly, but you would not have wanted to hold your hand out there because this would sting when it hits you. The velocity would have stung you, and the fact that these things were still hot would have stung you. Wow. So you probably would have only held your hand out for a little while, but these things would be hitting the ground all over the place, potentially from what some researchers have proposed – you potentially would have had wildfires start based on these little incandescent spherules, but also because of the heated uh, atmosphere based on their reentry. Wow. So the entire Earth is on fire within hours. You would have had fires poking up multiple different places all over the planet uh, based on some of the, the current research that has been put out there. And to think about that event, it's just, it's just a, 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 wow. a, a terrible sort of a thing just to befall these, these creatures that had no idea what was headed their way. They were having a great day probably, and then you have this fall in their lap. Not to mention the seismic waves that I mentioned before. Right. So, yeah. so for Tannis, we see – uh, on top of the old uh, sandbar, it's called a point bar, part of an old river system. You see them all over the Hell Creek Formation. They're very well documented. This point bar showed us that there was a river that was flowing uh, eastward into the, uh, the giant seaway, the western interior seaway that split the U.S. in two at that point. And that's basically similar for all the Hell Creek rivers. They're all going to be flowing eastward more or less into the seaway. What we saw on top of this point bar is a very out-of-place sort of deposit. Uh, we saw a very turbulently emplaced, somewhat thick deposit that was sort of like a drape over the top of the entire point bar. It didn't just collect in the little low-lying areas. It was like a, a drape of relatively even thickness over the top of this. And looking at the flow indicators... Uh, in, in the uh, in the little sedimentary structures, it indicated that it was deposited mostly when the water was flowing opposite the direction of the river. Rivers going roughly eastward, this deposit was from something flowing roughly westward. We're like, oh, that doesn't really make any sense. You know, add to that that you've got a bunch of other features uh, that indicate uh, a marine influence. We had uh, marine microorganisms. We had uh, marine uh, uh, foraminifers, which is uh, the the, the forams, forams yep. are basically a, yeah the forams are, are basically a little shelled organism, and uh, they lived uh, in the in the water column and some lived on the uh, the sea floor. That's a that's a feature that you see only associated with the ocean. I have to interrupt because we we kind of went over this on our first interview, but you know we are biting our fingernails here because there are <laughs> things we couldn't discuss 
What are the new yeah. things? Come on, what are the new <laughs> things? What did you find that you couldn't tell us in the what? last interview? That's the, that's the ten year old. The one thing that was always yeah. in our minds, yeah. The, the one thing that was always in our minds is okay. So we've got the snapshot of the past. We got the snapshot of the the day of the impact. Um, when are we going to find the dinosaurs? And when are we going to look at creatures that lived during that time? That that's you know, we're dinosaur people. Of course, we're going to want to well, see that. Yeah. And yeah. now that we, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. So when we put out our first paper, it's like, okay, you did a great job on the sedimentology, the stratigraphy, everything. Where the heck are the dinosaurs? We're trying to explain this. It's not a dinosaur paper. Ease up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> have some patience, uh, and then we can talk about it. Well, now we've actually presented some of these findings, and we're oh. about to uh, put these out in uh, in uh, different papers. Yes. But uh, at the uh, the NASA's Goddard Space Center, we're able to present uh, some of the, the juicy stuff that is just – on the table now okay and yes that does involve some of the creatures which is to my great delight now going to be out there for the world study i'm ready um, i'm ready tell me <laughs> so the the two things that we always think about in the late cretaceous you know we, we think about the dinosaurs and the other reptiles that lived back then and, and one of the reptiles uh being the flying variety the pterosaurs mm. that lived back then okay and one of the fossils from this site is a, a, a unique type of uh, a fossil that has thus far not been found in North America before. And oh. it was so weird that when we first encountered this thing, I immediately reached out to a number of, uh, of other researchers outside of the primary team to say, look, I'm not even going to tell you what I think this is. Just you tell me what this is in your opinion, because I don't even want to hazard a guess. And, and that's when uh, <laughs> I Dr. Know what it is. David Unwin, Dr. David Unwin uh, of Great Britain, he's a, 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 one of the world's foremost pterosaur researchers, uh, got back to me and said, you realize, you realize what you've got here, right? I was like, nah, just, just tell me. I, I'm, just tell me, please. And essentially what he identified was an unborn embryonic pterosaur from what? the Tannis event deposit the thing was about the size uh the, the the object was about the size of a hen's egg he identified the uh the, the skeleton inside which is partially articulated as the folded up beautifully preserved late term embryo of a pterosaur late term no meaning that it was about to hatch it was not an early term it was well preserved well ossified Okay, so wait, wait. So wow, how do wow, you think wow. how do you think it got in this one of the flows? How do you think it got there? And was it next to anything? Because we know that the Tanasite is a train wreck of, of deposition because it was all put there by these massive sesh waves. What sesh. do you sesh sesh? <laughs> uh, what is it? Sesh. Seish. Seish. Everyone says it a different way. We, I say yeah. seish. But, seish. You know, okay, yeah. so how did it get there? How did the pterosaur egg get there? The way it boils down to is, is this. The, anything that we see in that deposit was essentially at the, uh, at the right place at the wrong time. Or the right place at the right time for our purposes. Yeah, right. it got yeah, yeah. preserved. Essentially, it was, it was within striking distance of that Seish wave. And we know the Seish wave was at least 10 and a half meters high. So anything that that Seish wave inundated could have become entrained in that massive roiling wave of death that had all the mud and animals and plants mixed in. So wow. uh, 
the the uh, thought about uh, pterosaur nesting, which has been supported by some past fossils uh, on other continents, is by that the they probably had their eggs uh, either by water sources uh, or also in the soft sediment. They could have put their eggs just in the soft sediment, the very upper portions of the soft sediment, almost like uh, crocodiles would do today. And that would have put it in a prime striking uh, uh, position for this massive wave of water. So where There's in the 150 a, centimeters is this egg? This egg is within the upper one quarter of the deposit. So, so you're at looking 2C? at all... Two two C to find so, so so basically yeah yeah this is this is an upper unit two yeah this is above the main mass death layer and it's within uh, w where we see scattered carcasses so the main mass death assemblage is right at the boundary between the two surges and in the upper surge we see isolated carcasses here and there isolated tree branches isolated tree trunks and then we had this egg. The closest things to this egg were uh, a, a couple of tree trunks, uh, some branches, and a, a paddlefish, a fossil paddlefish. So I'm, I'm looking at your diagram. It's about 100 centimeters in or from the yeah, bottom. Yeah, more, more or less. Right. More or less. Right. Well, and, we'll, uh, we'll have this the, diagram the, on our website. Because, and what, uh, what is 100 centimeters in, um, uh, in, in feet? In American? So you're looking at a little over three feet. Robert, tell me this, man. Yeah. So at first, when you're, you're tantalizing there, you're leading up to it. I was picturing a, a pterosaur that got struck down from the sky, but yet it's, it is a, it's an egg, and the little baby was about to hatch. And so has your uh, pterosaur researcher been able to name uh, a genus, and is, this, is that paper coming out? The, uh, the research that uh, has been presented at uh, NASA and, and is, is going to be out not too terribly long from now in, uh, in the scientific paper is yeah. going to detail all of those, uh, all those little factoids. You know, we want to make sure, you know, we're not going to name a new species based on this probably. And, I you know, see. we might not even want to do a genus, but as far as the family, uh, we actually can talk some about that because this is most likely part of the Asdarkid uh, pterosaurs. That's what includes Quetzalcoatlus, the giant uh, Asdarkid pterosaurs that were there at the end of the Cretaceous. Be still oh. a beating heart. Oh, my God. Okay. That's cool. Wow. We know that they existed in the Hell Creek Formation. There are, I think, two that were reported in the official scientific literature over the years, two isolated bones that show that they were here in the Hell Creek. But as far as I'm aware, no one's actually named it. There's not enough to go on, and we just know that they were there. We don't know much about the ones that were there. Now, now we know a hell of a lot about the ones that were there because, as, uh, as uh, Dr. Unwin and, and some of our other uh, colleagues have pointed out, this is the first pterosaur embryo from the late Cretaceous. The others that were known were from the early Cretaceous. This is the only one known from the late Cretaceous and the only one known from the Asdarkids and the only one from North America. So there are a lot of firsts here, but um, this is also, I believe, the 20th one in the world. So the other ones are mostly wow. from Asia. Um, the, the, uh, the one where we've got the most eggs and embryos for one species is uh, Hemipterus. This is from, uh, from uh, China. And that was presumed to have been a, a, a nesting colony that got covered up in, in sort of a beach environment in the soft sand. As I was mentioning, they probably were nesting in the soft sand. Wow. But now we've got an idea of how these Asdarkids would have reproduced. We know that they would have had leathery-shelled eggs. 
just like the early Cretaceous pterosaurs. So it seems that these leathery eggs were a really good reproductive strategy for the pterosaurs. Is there evidence of any eggshell? We have morphological and chemical evidence of eggshell in this specimen. (laughs) So that shows us, that shows us at a, essentially at a micro scale, we're able to delve into the microstructure of how these eggshells uh, grew, how they were put together, essentially, and how they compare to other leathery shelled eggs today. Wow. And to me, that gives you a window into the beautifully evolutionarily crafted lifestyles of these different organisms. You're able to get an idea of what they were doing and how they were doing it. So this is just one of those sorts of glimpses that we hope to get. And now, you know, there there are multiple uh, different groups working on this thing right now. And we hope that after our first paper comes out, that we'll be getting more out about this little uh, fellow that if only it would have survived for a little bit longer, it could have hatched and had a front row seat to the worst day of the Cretaceous. But unfortunately, it, uh, it got washed away in the surge. Its brothers and sisters very well could have hatched. Huh. Well, you know, know, Brian, when you were... Uh, Robert, I'm sorry, I was talking about Brian, the, the other <laughs> diploma I've heard about. But no, uh, he, he's very cool. He's my cousin. My question is this: um, We are paleo nerds. You were teasing us with dinosaur stuff, but yet we paleo nerds that a, know that a pterosaur is not a dinosaur. And uh, oh, did I say dinosaur? Did I say no, dinosaur? Well, we were talking oh, about everybody really. wants to know about everybody wants to know not about really. the dinosaurs. We didn't say we didn't call it. You no, didn't no, call no, it no, dinosaur. No. You want to hear about the dinosaur stuff? Okay. Well, that's, well let's that's talk about what, the dinosaur stuff. A uh, little segue there. Yeah. You got some more? We'll <laughs> go into the other thing. First stop, NASA. Second stop, we get to talk about it with you guys. Excellent. Holy cow! All right, I'm ready. I'm sitting down. So, as a little recap, there was a day out at the site that was just, you know, we were absolutely beaming because we were excavating a fossil palm frond, and this was only the second one found at the site. It was a partial palm frond, and that was the coolest darn thing because it was partially three-dimensional. It was a beautiful thing, and you know, you don't find palm fronds too often in the Hell Creek. So, we were absolutely on cloud nine. Holy hell, we just found a palm frond. So that was that was the great day. We're digging a trench around the uh, the frond, and and basically we're logging the different little micro laminae in the sediment column around the palm frond as we're preparing to take it out in a plaster jacket. So we're collecting data. We're getting ready to remove the delicate frond. We're really excited, and the instrument that we're working with flips up one of the little layers, and underneath there are five little scales five little impressions of scales, a little darkened area. So you've got light gray matrix. There's this dark brown patch, and you got these five scales there. And immediately, everyone just, like, gasps. And and we're all like, okay, all right, soft tissue. Be careful, be careful with soft tissue. What is this? We don't know yet. Let's just be careful. And in our minds, we're thinking, oh, oh, this is our lucky day. But, you know, we want to be, you know, reserved about it. So we're maintaining our composure. And with every little bit of matrix that's removed by the instrument, the patch of scales grows and grows and grows. And then the tip of the instrument clinks against something that's hard, which is a piece of bone. So we've got skin associated with bone. We don't know what it is yet. Still could be crocodilian or anything. There's a lot of things that have scales. But in our hearts, we're thinking, oh, God, is this, is this a dinosaur? Is this a dinosaur? Wow. Because this looked very similar 
to the dinosaur skin that we found associated with the Triceratops at the site, which we know died a little bit before impact. So it was already decayed by the time the impact occurred. It did not die in the impact. But we knew that this looked very similar, just at a micro scale. We're thinking, oh, God, what is this? Could what this are we be from the same in? Triceratops, or is this... Uh... Just wait, just wait, he's getting to it. Basically, this piece was wedged between fossil logs, a palm frond, and some other stuff in the mass death layer. So this is in that area in the sediment column where we've got the, the densest concentration of uh, chaotic animals, plants, and everything else mixed together. So as we follow the shape of this, we notice there's one long bone, there's a joint in it, and there's another bone, and we're following the anatomy, and it's developing in our brains. What are we actually seeing? And then we realize this has got to be either an arm or a leg of something. And finally, the tide turns because we get to the ankle, and we realize, oh, this is a leg. So we've got this, this small dinosaur leg all the way down to the tips of the toes. We've got the claws there. They're... They're not sharp claws. These are blunt claws. So it's a herbivorous dinosaur. And it's not ceratopsian. It's a relatively small leg. It's about uh, two, two and a half feet long. As this thing gets exposed, we're looking at the anatomy. We're thinking, man, what, what in the world could this be? It's not a hadrosaur. So we narrowed it down right there. We know, holy God, this is actually a dinosaur of some point, of some kind. This is, you know, this is phenomenal. Three-dimensional skin uh, is basically not that common anywhere you, you're, you're looking. But in the Hell Creek Formation, you're not seeing three-dimensional skin that often. And the way the skin impressions were with this leg is you've got dark uh, uh, organic material from what we supposed and, and later confirmed uh, associated with these beautiful pebbly scales, but it's draped in a three-dimensional fashion on top of the leg. So you see the thigh, you see the calf that, for all intents and purposes, looks like a Thanksgiving turkey drumstick, oh. down to the ankle and the toes. So it's and in three dimensions. Ankle, it's not flattened as It's usual. in three dimensions. Wow. Oh, my right. goodness. And, so and, here's the thing. and it is a leg of a... I'm guessing. No, but go, go ahead. And more importantly... You mentioned, yes, three-dimensional. So this thing had not deflated. This thing had not yet begun to decay. So most likely, as we pointed out in our, our previous presentation, the, this is probably uh, – there's a very good case to present <laughs> to suggest yeah. this could be <laughs> yes. – what all the disclaimers are there – uh, <laughs> Paul Barrett of the Natural History Museum London <laughs> feels that it is uh, – very likely that this was an organism killed by the surge. Right. It does not appear to have died from disease. It doesn't look like it was scavenged or killed by any predators. It looks like something that basically we ruled out. Uh, Paul and I and Phil Manning and, and the rest of the team, uh, Paul was not on uh, this particular team. He was brought in uh, a very, very wonderful man that, that uh, incredibly knowledgeable on this topic that uh, that helped us out by by putting his eyes on the specimen and and, and uh, gave his opinion on it and uh, we worked through every possible scenario and basically ruled them out one by one wasn't disease wasn't ripped apart wow. by a predator wasn't scavenged or anything and yet it was well preserved enough that it hadn't yet started to decay before being entombed this was probably something that died in the surge and wow. it's not just all the skin 
you know, you see the beautiful skin, those, those large uh, overlapping scutate scales on top of the toes and on top of the ankle, like you right. see in all the paleo illustrations. Right. You see those on the specimen. Wow. And the pads of the toes, the, the little little bottoms of the, of, the, of the toes where they'd be walking in the ground, you see the beautiful pebbly scales there. Now, we had this CT scanned. I, we couldn't wait. We had the CT scanned at the hospital in Bowman, North Dakota. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful people. We there. have a patient here. And yes, it was okay. the weirdest patient, weirdest patient they've ever had. Inside this envelope, a three-dimensional uh, uh, skin impression, we actually have a fully articulated leg. So we've got the femur. You have tendons? We've got, we've got the tibia. We've got the fibula. We've got the ankles. We've got all the phalanges of toes. And they're almost perfectly in their life position. There are a couple of breaks that probably occurred during the surge that were what we call green stick fracture. That's yeah. the type of fracture that yeah. you see associated with fresh bone. It was a live, yeah, it was a live, a live bone. Right. So you're looking at, they're, they're dumbfounded looking at the screen. They're amazed looking at this. They're like, my God, this is like the leg of an animal that died yesterday with all the bones still preserved in there. And we're looking at this in three dimensions thinking, Wow, now I've got an idea of what this is. You could have the first Cretaceous end event murder victim. The, mo the first dinosaurian one. So is this about, is, how, how big is this piece? Is this about three feet long or so? How, how many yeah, We're talking how, about two, two and a half feet. Yeah, if it was standing up at the hip, it would be talking about a two and a half foot uh, creature. This was a sub-adult. And when we looked at the bone structure from those CT scans, we could see that the, the bones most closely uh, aligned with a type of dinosaur that we call a cephalosaur. So ah, it's a little bit of a dinosaur. I got it. And it, it, it I was is. Say, uh, that. say that again. Wow. A thethylosaur? Yeah. What? Thethylosaur. Imagine, imagine something that was either like a, a deer, antelope, gazelle type right. ecomorph of the dinosaur world. Right. Uh, they were relatively fast. They were agile. Bipedal? They were uh, uh, bipedal. Uh, and they were a herbivorous uh, dinosaur. Like a coelophysis type place. thing? Uh, no, this would have been herbivorous. So right. they would have been munching on the plants. But uh, a gorgeous little animal. I, I love the, the thessalosaurs. Were there any feathers on it? Yeah, there were no it feathers. Like? There were no feathers. No feathers. Okay. But the scale pattern is interesting because we're able to discern a pattern uh, in the orientation of the scales that gives us an idea of what this animal looked like that we didn't really know before. So now reconstructions can, can kind of add this little detail in to show what this pattern was like. The pattern probably reflected a, a, a difference in, uh, in the coloration, which we will Did get into in a future study. So I can't talk to you about that. Can't talk okay. to you about that okay. one. That's not part of the first one. All right. But actually, let but, me ask you this, though. There have been other uh, Thessalosaur fossils found in the Hell Creek. And one of them yeah. had a remarkably preserved uh, heart in it, as I recall. Do you know that specimen? Yes, there's a Thessalosaur I'm aware of. It's, uh, I think they nicknamed it Willow, and this was found years ago. They had uh, an object in the chest cavity that yes, some proposed yes. might be uh, sort of a, a lithified uh, uh, soft tissue, for possibly the heart. Uh, I've not studied that one personally. Um, I know other people have. Uh, I've heard a lot of different things about it. If that is, in fact, uh, wow. uh, a heart or, or related to the heart, that would be absolutely remarkable. I would love to see it in yeah, person. I, 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 can't, I, did a, I can't do you an assessment because I haven't seen it. Well, but, um, I did a little keep... drawing of it uh, called Heart of Stone. So There you go. Oh, that's excellent. Control. 
That's so a, a three-dimensional uh, we'll turkey leg with scales and articulated, wow. yeah, and and fresh breaks from the, you know, sadly, when we had the Indonesian tsunami, where hundreds of thousands of people died, many people succumbed to the tsunami of debris and trees and, and the surge of water. And, and those are the type of breaks were found in that type of uh, cataclysm. Yeah. Do you think this leg was... I mean, to get all gritty about it, ripped off the animal or somehow. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's actually right there in the debris. Well, I was just about to get gritty for you. Yeah, yeah I was please. just about to yeah. get into that. Lots of times, uh, you know, people don't realize is it's not always the, the turbulent water that is dangerous to you in this type of a surge, whether it be a massive river flood, as I've seen lots of damage occur, or tsunami surges, giant surges like this are dangerous because of, of the debris that's in it. It's basically just like a hurricane. The winds are not what's necessarily gonna hurt you in a hurricane. If you're standing out there in the middle of the street during a hurricane, it's the palm branches and the power lines and everything else that are gonna smack into you roof. due to those winds. Right. So in this case, you've got these massive tree logs and you've got other animals and things that are being thrown about very violently by the surge. And anything that is in the way of that is essentially going to be in a giant watery meat grinder. So right. I've seen examples in the big rivers in Mississippi and the Kansas River before where you've had uh, deer and, uh, and, uh, and beavers in some cases that were actually ripped open by the logs during massive surges. And those surges were definitely less than what this surge was. So wow. anything in the way of that that, uh, like I said, it was essentially a meat grinder, uh, would have had a very bad day. That's where these breaks likely occurred. Wow. Is there tissue damage at the head, at the top of the leg, uh, showing some sort of rupture or something? I don't know. We do see examples of torn skin uh, with this, and that wow. is compatible with what we see with the other animals. We see some fish with their, uh, their sword-like uh, rostra, their noses that puncture right through the bodies of other fish. Some go right through the gills and out the mouth of other fish. So this was a bad day for all those creatures. You just did not get buried calmly in the deposit. Wow. Um, and when you think back about it, uh, this Thessalosaur and the Triceratops that died not long before impact, and then the footprints that we see that are right under the surge deposit that were buried by the surge muds, uh, you know, it, it kind of gives you an interesting picture into how vibrant the dinosaur component really was back then. Because we know the Triceratops was there. We know the Thessalosaur was there. And by the footprints, we know that several types of theropod dinosaurs, ornithomimids, we had ohadrosaurs, ceratopsians, everything. We know that those were there right before impact and in great numbers. So it gives you an idea of... Well, that's good like to know. Back then. It and was diverse right up to the very end. That's been a controversy, whether or not it was diverse or dwindling. I keep hearing about the three-foot problem. What is that? Can you? Can either of you explain that to me? It has to do with, what is it, sediment after the KPG boundary? It's before. The three-meter gap is what you're talking about, I think. Oh, there yeah? you go. Yeah. What yeah. is that? Yeah, well, three meters. Three-meter gap is... Nine feet. That is sort of like a, a no-go zone in the Hell Creek Formation where you don't find dinosaur fossils usually uh, right below the boundary. So the, the upper three meters right up to the, the boundary where you see the asteroid impact layer, uh, traditionally you don't find dinosaurs there. Some people had uh, had proposed, well, well, that's because the dinosaurs were already dead or they were already rare enough uh, in the Hell Creek that 
you know, they weren't represented. Um, and one thing that those people really don't necessarily articulate or understand is that uh, whenever you find dinosaurs in the Hell Creek and in other places, you know, a lot of times you find concentrations that are uh, put there by river accumulation. Basically, you have rivers that go through the landscape and they concentrate the bones in a certain area. And in the upper Hell Creek, you're not going to have that happen because the rivers that would be cutting down into that, you know, they'd be coming from above the boundary. As uh, Dean Pearson had pointed out years ago in one of his papers, uh, trying to tackle the three meter gap, he said, look, Mm -hmm. most of these bones are concentrated by rivers. So if you had a river that was flowing at the moment of the impact, that would have carved into the landscape and resulted in a of concentration below the impact layer. So you're not going to get right up to the impact layer with such a river. It's been also pointed out that there's something called the Signor Lips effect. You know, that's where essentially, let me put this in sort of like informal terms. Yes, please. Um, If you've got a a highway that's out there, you've got like, you know, three lane traffic and you randomly just dart across the highway, right? While the traffic is going, you're not always going to get run over. Right. You're not always going to encounter a vehicle. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you won't. But it's the part of the luck of the draw. Now, if you're going to be sampling in that three meter gap, you're not always going to encounter something that existed right then. that's contemporaneous with those sediments. So the three meter gap is not necessarily something that indicates that the animals were right there. You know, it's more difficult to find than that. Because fossilization is a rare event anyway. We know that. Does this nine feet, this three meter gap exist worldwide or just in the Hell Creek? It's tough to determine that because the Hell Creek formation is one of the best terrestrial deposits that goes right up to and crosses the KPG boundary. So it's not yet determined if that three meter gap would be a rule of thumb elsewhere, but it's been best articulated and, and uh, characterized. And the so nothing has been found in zero in that nine meter area until the Tannis site. Is that there have been reports of one or two isolated bones that might be a little bit closer than three meters. But again, that's not an articulated skeleton. So people have argued, well, it's an isolated bone. It could have been reworked. You know, it's like we can, I'm living in Florida right now. We find mammoth and mastodon bones in our rivers sometimes right now. And they've been dead for millions of years. Yeah. Well, Robert, uh, I understand the difficulty in uh, making these astounding discoveries and bringing in the experts to identify things. And, uh, you know, there's allusions or that we've mentioned the dinosaur feathers and a, maybe a mosasaur and an ammonite. Those kind of things are tantalizing, but those papers and those discoveries will come out in due time. I suppose, how does the process of uh, revealing your discoveries work? Well, um, the the proper and, and scientific way to do this, following yeah. the scientific method, is to present these to the scientific community uh, at, at large. And the way we start with that uh, is... Obviously, you look up uh, on Google and you can see thousands of uh, scientific conferences out there for multiple disciplines, including paleo. That's how we first do it. So usually these things are first reported in scientific conferences. And and that's what we did uh, most recently back in October. And that's when we reported on uh, the first report, actually, on the feathers and uh, the trackways and and several of the things you just mentioned. so those actually have been put out there in conference form, and then we'll go ahead and elaborate on those further 
in the uh, in the scientific papers, which will uh, will come out after the ones that we're working on right now. But we've already actually started drafting those up. So the proper order is you can announce it in a conference and then follow it up with a paper that, that is peer reviewed or can be peer reviewed. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people just, you know, skip the conference entirely and just go right to a paper. But um, the best way to do it, if you have a lot of stuff to talk about and you're not going to be putting all the papers out at one time, these things right. take a lot of time and rigorous work to make sure you do it properly. You should never, ever, ever rush into a paper. You should always do uh, uh, basically a lengthy treatment of it and cover all your bases. So uh, if you want to do something rather quickly and you've got a lot of studies to put out, you know, get it out there in a conference, talk about your preliminary work, let everybody uh, hear about it and assess it and, and move on from there. That's, that's really a, a really good way to do it and have a good back and forth about it. While we're on this subject, I, I have a question I was going to ask toward the end. Uh, and, and, Ray, I want you to get into the frogs, crocodiles, and time. <laughs> okay, but, that. Yeah. but since we're on this subject, do the fact that the nightmare scenario happened. A mainstream publication announced your findings before you could submit your papers. It was like the day before. What advice can you give to other paleontologists and researchers uh, or students or anybody in the paleontological community that, so this doesn't happen to them? Yeah, and, and that's mostly true what you said. Uh, we already had submitted the paper, though. It already went through like over a year of peer review, and, and they put the, the, the media article, put their thing out, like I think it was like a day, might have been a day or maybe two days right. before the scientific paper, and that was enough to be bad, and, yeah. and we did not want that to happen. We were horrified when we found out that that happened. It was, so how does the future not scientists a good, not a good thing. prevent that from happening again? It's very, very difficult to have people stand by their word. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. They're human. <laughs> so, so in cases like this, um, I strongly, strongly urge <laughs> never talk to the media. No, uh, <laughs> I, I, I strongly urge uh, to concentrate on the science itself. And if anyone begs you for uh, media interviews or anything, have two, three, or even four non-disclosure agreements signed with them right. where they absolutely have to stick to their word because this was a, a, an awful circumstance that, uh, that was quite damaging and had nothing to do with the research team itself. So it, it, uh, it took away from science that was being done. And, uh, you know, anyone that, yeah. that uh, looks to a media article to, to learn about science is, is obviously going the wrong place. Yeah. The, the, the so, science so comes from the science. get your NDAs paper. out. Get your NDAs out and make sure. Get the NDAs aspect. out. Be careful who you talk to. And yeah. it's, a, it's a really fine line to tread because think about it this way. You want to protect your research team and the work that you've you've put so much effort into and the specimens while also remaining open to other researchers and the scientific community at uh, at large. So basically, you want to be able to provide uh, opportunities for collaboration and not be closed off, but you still want to be cautious and yeah. not let the stuff end up biting you like this. Yep. Right. While we're on that topic, I do want to get into what happened on the planet, but uh, but while we're on the topic of things rolling out, can we talk about the BBC in Attenborough for a moment? I believe we can. I think we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Did well, you uh, get to meet well, Sir David Attenborough? 
What was it like working with David Attenborough? Did you share a cup of tea with him? Sir David is off screen. He <laughs> is colorful, just as much, if not better, of an individual than anything that I've ever seen in any wow. documentary. He wow. is one of the most genuine, caring human beings I've ever met in my life. And he truly cares about natural history. He cares about the modern environment and life on Earth in general. Uh, I cannot think of a better advocate for uh, worldwide life than yeah. Sir David. Did you shoot a lot of that stuff then last year, um, Robert? Is that a year-long process? We, we, we did a fair amount of, uh, of filming with Sir David. Uh, as well as in other locations uh, at, at the site um, as these discoveries occurred. So oh, really? as, On camera, huh? Uh, huh? As, as a lot of the things were, were happening, you know, that, that wow. this was covered. And uh, the moments of actual discovery that we were not expecting, <laughs> they, they occurred. So that was a, a, really, a really fun thing. But uh, I think some of my most memorable times um, – with Sir David were off camera when we just got to talk about the environment and what what direction it was taking, what what, what direction were we going right now and, and how might that kind of be startling to us and what can we do to change that? And then you know, he right. picks up a fossil off the table and he, and he says, well, th this is how we're going to know. I said, yeah, <laughs> that's the whole point of it. This is how we're going to know. We, we, we look in the past and we have the only opportunity available to us to actually look and see, well, how do these worldwide hazards affect life on Earth? Well, this is how you know. And that's really the whole point of it. So we, we had to get broken up so many times by the film crew because we would get into our own discussions about, you know, how to, how to help today's ecologies and how to prevent mass extinction occurring and, and various different things. I, I, all right, we're, we're ready to go here. You guys have to stop talking now. So the sense of urgency is is palpable. It's so real. And uh, to have Sir David there, does he just go by Sir David? Is it you just say, Sir David, uh, you want a beer? What? I don't think that I would have been able to call him anything. I was, I'm surprised <laughs> I was able to even speak to him, honestly, because oh, wow. to be in the same room with such a figurehead of of, you know, knowledge and, and conservation was was it blew my mind. And, and that's sort of brings me to one of the other aspects of this whole thing that, that really I think is important. And that is that it, it can be a source of inspiration for future generations. You know, people that hear about the research going on here and the people involved and, and Sir David and everybody else who find inspiration in all of that. The important thing is that this could be bringing a future generation into the fold and when they're fascinated about it and they have a sense of pride about the world in which they live, then they'll have that stewardship. They'll, they'll basically have that sense of stewardship, wanting to take care of it and, and preserve it for future generations beyond their own. So this could be, amongst all the other things, a, a step towards that next generation getting sparked and finding a, a, a sense of fascination in their world and they want to take care of it. Well, it transcends you, you transcend the excitement, and uh, it, it is infectious, and, and it will inspire the next generation. What I was just thinking about when you're talking about there, Robert, is that 
when you can actually put your hand and see the moment that a world was swept away and to realize your role on in the planet and we have that insight you know that we could do what we we need to do what we could do to to preserve the world we have now i guess is yeah well said yeah, and you know we're only here for a little bit we, we're yep. only here for a short <laughs> length of time and and you know we're only a little teeny piece in the whole puzzle and it's important to make that little piece count and yeah. that's really the whole point in all of it well you're doing it you're making it count there's generations that are going to be working in the Tannis site, for sure. Well, they're amazing discoveries, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time for uh, Robert De Palma Redux Part 2. Part 2. Boom. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, guys. You're awesome. Wow, a three-dimensional chicken leg. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dinosaur, man. It's a di well, chickens are dinosaur, but that's right. This is a non-avian dinosaur, a thestalosaur. Can you say that again? No, I don't know. I yeah, thestalosaur. thestalosaur. <laughs> it's be more fun. You know, everybody out there, it's more fun to lisp it. Thestalosaur. <laughs> it is. Now you got me doing it. Thestalosaur. But that was incredible. Did you see me? I w I was on the edge of my seat. And, yeah. and, and. I asked him afterwards. We didn't get it on the recording. Is that I said, we know how deep it is, 150 centimeters, which is uh, 1.5 meters, right? So a little over it's three a, feet. It's, yeah. It's but a I yard. said, how big is it? How wide and long? He said, it's two acres, two acres of deposition. And they've capped off sections knowing that like other generations are going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. I did get to nerd out, you know, like a pterosaur is not a dinosaur. You're teasing us. How about the dinosaur? So right, right, right. That was a fun, fun interview, man. Wow. So a uh, couple announcements. Uh, I am. What? I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna be. I'm pregnant. Oh, <laughs> no, Dave. I'm going to Australia. I'm what? Four times this year. You're leaving me. I'm back performing. No. I'm not leaving you. We'll be doing many more Paleo Nerds podcasts, but they're not going to be, for you listening audience, they aren't going to be as regular as every week. So we mm. will bring them out uh, when we can. And I know you're doing a lot more traveling as well now that the pandemic is kind of behind us in, in a this strange wave, sort of this way. This wave, but yeah. well, that's cool, Dave. I want, I've been enjoying myself. I really want to keep yeah. doing this, but uh, yeah, we've got these things we're doing. And and you, you and know, I, I privately talked about, we have some definite uh, guests that we have oh, to we got want people to coming interview. Up, coming up, yeah. That's Again, right. Ray, I thank you for your homework you did today for this excellent episode of Robert De Palma Part 2. This was probably one of the most exciting episodes we've had. I was literally, like I said, sweating. Oh, man. He was going to tell us, and he didn't tell us what he was going to tell I us. Know, and then he told I us. I know. And great. then we had to keep quiet about it till we, yeah. you know, we promised yeah. to keep quiet about it. So yeah. I can't, I'm not going to tell anybody. This is like another time thing, isn't it? Anyways. So, well, you're hearing it now, so we, we're allowed to tell you. So. But we recorded it then. Yeah. Because all we ever have, Dave, is what? Time travel is wonderful. All we ever have, Dave, is the past because everything, every word I just oh. said is now in the past. No, everything you just said is in the present and now it's in the future. But because you're listening to this now, it's the past. <laughs> Signing and, off from Ojai, California, yeah. where we're still waiting for rain. Hey, guess what? It's raining here in Ketchikan, where I am signing off. So All see right. you later, Dave. Have fun down under. Yeah, well, I haven't left yet. So I'll we, let you know that tour is over now, right? Uh, we have no the future isn't here yet oh my gosh <laughs> the time warp alright see All you right. dude have fun see ya
Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Thank you.